Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Richard Heinberg and host Michael Lerner. Richard gives a presentation in this episode. Look for a link in the description field to download a PDF to follow along. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. I'm Kira Epstein, the program coordinator for the new school at Commonweal. We are here today with our host, Michael Lerner. We're so uh, grateful and pleased to have him joining us live on a webinar. And we also welcome Richard Heinberg back to the new school. In just a couple of minutes, I'll turn this over to Michael, and he will welcome you further and introduce Richard. We are recording this conversation, and we'll have produced audio and video files available. You can find all of our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. I always want to thank Ken Adams, who makes this all run from behind the scenes. So thank you. And finally, thank all of you for your donations to the new school. Your support allows us to make these events available to everyone, regardless of their situation. And now I think we're ready to begin. Michael Lerner and Richard Heinberg, welcome back to the New School at Commonweal. Thank you, Kira. And Richard Heinberg, what a complete joy to have you back. Oh, thank you, Michael. Richard, uh, your new book, Power, uh, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival, I think it's a really extraordinary book. Um, and it's been greeted by uh, many of our friends and colleagues uh, for what it is. Dennis Meadows, who was co-author with Dana Meadows of the Great Club of Rome report, uh, Limits to Growth, called it an impressive, sweeping, and thought-provoking narrative. Um, uh, Dar Jamal called, said it was impeccably researched and masterfully rich, written. This book explains how and why humanity is driving itself off the cliff. Uh, one of my favorite quotes was from Chuck Collins. Uh, Power reminds us that Richard Heinberg is one of the most important public intellectuals in the conversation about society's future. Joanna Macy, our friend and colleague, described uh, Heinberg's panoramic review of known forms of power as both sobering and inspiring. And there are many other quotes from friends and colleagues uh, inside, but I'm so grateful to see others recognizing what I felt as I read this, which was that you've done something that I, I think is quite unique in the history of uh, the literature on power, uh, which is a linked, I, I would say, more forms of power together in a coherent narrative than I've seen done before. Is that your sense? Have you seen anything as you reviewed the literature? Did you find anyone else who had taken this comprehensive an approach to power? Um, well, if I had, it would have saved me a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, the word power, especially the English word power, um, is is very broad in its meanings, and I I played with that because uh, in French and German, for example, there are different words for social power versus physical power, but uh, but in English the the term really has uh, very very broad meanings, and 
And again, I was able to play on that in order to bring together phenomena from many, from, from the biological sciences, from social sciences, uh, and environmental sciences, and, uh, and make kind of a coherent statement, if you will. And I also detected, I'm sure you've reflected on this, a, a kind of a, a, what seemed to me a clear uh, evolution from your extraordinary work on uh, on energy uh, through the Post Carbon Institute uh, to uh, to looking at power. That it, it seemed to me that you were searching, okay, beyond all the work that we've done on energy and you know the the limits to uh, how much carbon we can put in the atmosphere. Uh, to go from that focus on energy to a deeper and broader focus on power uh, seemed to me, a, a, you know, a, a completely understandable and in some ways logical uh, uh, development in your thinking. Yeah, and it was it was a, a, a challenging development too because uh, I, I had to go outside my comfort zone in terms of, of research and writing in order to do justice to this, this larger frame of, of power. Uh, and, you know, readers can judge for themselves uh, whether I was entirely successful in that or not. But um, I think it's, you know, it's, it, it's time for us to look at the big picture. The, 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 it's a challenge to, to write a big picture book these days. They don't sell well. Publishers don't want to publish them. But um, we're at a stage in... Our, our evolution, our history, and, and a stage in relation to what's coming next, where I think it's really incumbent on, on all of us who can to step back and, and take a, a, a broader look at what it is to be human, where are we going, why are we doing this, uh, and what does it all mean? Mm -hmm. uh, Kira was kind enough to post your bio in the chat function. So it's it's long and distinguished, and therefore I'm grateful to have it in the chat so we don't have to go over it all now. But but I, I do want to say that in the work that uh, I and many others have done on um, the poly crisis, uh, the great unraveling, the global problematic, the human dilemma, the end of the world as we know it, the great simplification, uh, whatever we choose to call uh, the present moment, uh, you really are one of the most significant public intellectuals and thinkers addressing this. And uh, we've been fortunate to have you at some of our gatherings at Commonweal for the Omega Network. Uh, and, uh, and I often find as I read the, the literature that almost everywhere I go, you've been there before me, and you've commented on it, and uh, and so on. So, um, so it's just a, a great privilege and pleasure uh, to continue to be in dialogue with you. Well, thank you, Michael. That's very generous of you to say, and I I, I feel uh, at least equally thankful to be in your company. Well, thank you. So what we're going to do for our participants and, and listeners is uh, Richard's going to do a PowerPoint that will last uh, 30 to 40 minutes maximum. 
And then we'll come back with an opportunity to talk with Richard. So Richard, over to you. We look forward to it. Thank you, Michael. So this is the, uh, this is the cover of the book. And um, my, my objective with this book was not so much to propose uh, uh, some new solution to our, our human dilemma. Uh, there, there are lots of those out there. Um, my, my objective really was to arrive at some sense of understanding and wisdom of you know, why this is going on, what, uh, uh, where we are in relation to previous human evolution and so on. So wisdom is, uh, is a big, another big word, and I, I define it as prioritizing what's truly important from a long-range perspective and living well within limits. Uh, so the, the, the book was organized around three questions. And uh, uh, briefly, they, these are, how have we just one species out of millions become so powerful as to bring the planet to the brink of climate chaos and mass extinction? I mean, we really have become extremely powerful. We, uh, we, we move more of the Earth's crust annually just with mining than all of nature's processes like wind, rain, ocean currents, and all those things all put together. So we are the, the dominant force on the planet now. How did, how did that happen? Second, how have we developed so many ways of oppressing and exploiting one another? Uh, because that's also something really remarkable about our species. Uh, other social species also have you know, pecking orders like chickens do and uh, inequality in that sense. But we humans have taken that to just an extraordinary extreme. And then finally, is it possible to change our relationship with power? Okay, so these, these are not unique questions. They've been rattling around in my head for, for a long time, and other people have addressed them in various ways. But I wanted to do it in a systematic way. Um, and, uh, and so what's, what are we talking about? What is power? Well, ask a physicist and she will say it's the rate of energy transfer. And energy, of course, is extremely important. We'll get to that in, in, in a moment. But we use energy to do things. So often when we sp speak of power, we're talking about the power to do something, like the power of flight or the power of speech or, or whatever. But then often we use the word power, and here's where different languages have, have often have different words, as social power, the ability to get somebody else to do something. And even within social power, there are different forms. There's what might be called horizontal social power, uh, the, the ability to self-organize to accomplish something, uh, versus vertical social power, which is based on incentives and threats. That's the kind of power that an employer or a judge or a policeman uh, might have. And of course, vertical social power has gotten embedded throughout society. And then we use the word power to talk about the power of ideas, inspiration, the power of personality, all these other things. These are all legitimate uses of, of the word power. And they're all related. Start and they all go back to energy because without energy, basically nothing can happen. Uh, and so I do talk a lot about energy in the book, but uh, but I don't just stop there. Um, 
So power is a thread that ties together a lot of fields. And uh, I've, I've been interested in all this stuff for decades. But once I realized I was going to have to write about all of these, these things, I, I also realized I had to get up to speed. So um, I bought and read literally scores of books so that I could uh, get myself up to date with uh, this, um, power in social psychology, power in cell biology, power in evolutionary biology, uh, and on and on and on. Uh, and it was, I have to say, it was, it was the intellectual uh, kid in the candy store moment. Um, I, I, I loved researching this book. One of the book, and I'll show you the covers of some of the books I read. One of them, which is here, Nick Lane's "Power, Sex, and Suicide," fantastic book. He talks about most of um, cell biology that that we've studied in school. You know, twenty or thirty years ago, it was all about chemistry, which biochemistry, which a lot of of, it's, of course, still is. You know, DNA, RNA, and all all that. But increasingly. Um, biologists and cell biologists are looking at energy as you know the fundamental um, basis of of uh, living organisms and life processes so this is a factoid from um, from lane's book uh, gram for gram the average organism is 10,000 times as powerful as the sun that seems absolutely incredible until you do the math uh, and of course the, the sun is incredibly massive so you divide luminosity by mass and actually living things, you know, they're getting their power from someplace else from the sun uh, almost entirely. Uh, whereas the sun is, is creating its own power. Nevertheless, uh, living things are, have, have gotten incredibly good at, at uh, getting and using power. In evolution, the maximum power principle was identified uh, early in the 20th century as, as the organizing or driving mechanism. Um, organisms or uh, organisms within species or species within ecosystems that are able to aggregate and use the most power for purposes of um, reproduction and obtaining food tend to survive and leave more offspring and and succeed. Uh, it's kind of duh. Uh, we all know that. But it, it was nice to see that it, it had been formulated as a principle and, uh, and, and studied systematically. And so if, if that's true, then why isn't there just one organism that became supremely powerful and crowded all the other organs, organisms out of existence? Well, it's because there are so many different ways to express power uh, and different um, environments in which to do so. So you get, as a result of that, you get the immense variety of life. Um, one of the of the the books that I read in in research that I really loved was this one by Richard Prum, uh, ornithologist at uh, Yale University, on the evolution of beauty. Uh, Darwin wrote a book on sexual selection in which he tried to explain uh, the, the evolution of the peacock's tail, which he said made him very, very nervous because it's, it doesn't, it, from a, a, a natural selection standpoint, the, this elaborate but beautiful tail would seem to be an impediment 
you know, it makes the, the bird more obvious to predators and so on. But for purposes of attracting mates, the production of beauty become, can become a kind of obsession for species. And this is true not only in, uh, in animals, but also in flowering plants. Nature is intentionally beautiful. It's not just, you know, we subjectively look back and, and think, wow, that's, that's really pretty. Yeah, it is. But it, it's pretty largely because it's, it's trying to be. <laughs> um, and this will have more significance later on in our story. Uh, the evolution of, of human, specifically human power, uh, there, there are antecedents for all of these things in, in previous biological evolution. There are other uh, organisms that communicate, all, in fact, practically all organisms communicate in some way, and some of them are extremely good at it. We're just, we're just learning about the communicative abilities of starlings and crows, for example, just amazing. But we humans then took that a step further with language, where we developed the ability to use these abstract symbols and, and arrange them according to rules of grammar so that we could express complex, abstract thoughts, thoughts within thoughts, ask questions, talk about things in the future, things that don't exist, things that are entirely theoretical. Uh, and that has given us enormous power. And combine that with tool making. Um, and with, with, once we had language, then we could not only make superior tools, we could teach other people how to make tools, um, clothing, a, a tool, a set of technology that enabled us to live in all kinds of environments we couldn't have survived in otherwise. And then, of course, fire, which uh, had tremendous um, implications for you know, cooking food, increasing our uh, ability to access the energy in food, uh, keeping us warm at night, driving off predators. But then uh, later on, as we get to fossil fuels, has uh, uh, even more uh, implications. Chapter three of the book is about the evolution of vertical social power, which really goes back just to the beginning of the um, Holocene. Uh, or somewhat into the, the Holocene period, maybe 7,000, 8,000 years ago. Um, previous to that, we'd lived as hunter-gatherers, and in hunter-gatherer communities, there's generally uh, horizontal social power. Some people have more prestige, but it's because they know how to do special things, or they've, they've uh, shown their, their knowledge of the environment or herbs or whatever. Uh, with vertical social power, um, and uh, I, I'm not going to explain here the, the, the process that's dis described, again, just within the last 10 years, a tremendous amount has been learned about the, uh, the origin of the first state societies roughly 7,000 years ago. This is an excellent book by Yale University anthropologist, historian James C. Scott. Um, these first state societies had kings, writing, metal tools, money, slavery, and, uh, and they, were they were extremely unequal societies. And we've basically been, ever since then, we've been trying to recover in one way or another. But they were very powerful in relation to other societies. So even though they were socially unstable because they were so unequal, 
they because they had full-time specialists in violence and metal tools, they were they were very successful in, in wiping out neighboring societies. <clears throat> I mentioned that they were unstable, and this has been a feature of complex societies ever since. Uh, they're characterized by expansion, periods of expansion and retreat. Peter Turchin uh, and his colleagues are, are doing the best work on explaining that, that uh, instability. Um, and it's, it's really amazing what they've been able to do assembling an, an enormous database of uh, quantifiable information about um, state societies uh, over the last 7,000 years and, uh, and the kinds of cycles that they go through. Uh, they're characterized by a kind of wealth pump. In other words, once you get social inequality, uh, the people who are at the top of the social pyramid have the ability to arrange things in such a way that, that they increase their, their wealth and their social power even further. And so that, that wealth pump operates until it gets to a point where the, uh, the society becomes so unstable that it, it's brought down by revolution, uh, you know, internal dissent, uh, economic collapse, whatever. There are several things that can make it happen, but it seems to be more or less inevitable. So all of this plays out over the course of the last few thousand years until we get to about 200 years ago when uh, we started using fossil fuels. Now, there had to be some, some uh, developments prior to that, uh, basically what we'd call capitalism, government protection for investments, incentives for innovation. By the way, all of these things were present about a thousand years ago in China. Uh, privatization was going on, lots of in innovation. There was lots of coal lying around. And so China very nearly experienced uh, an industrial revolution. His history would have been very different if this had succeeded. Uh, but what happened next was the, the Chinese government decided that this was a threat and shut it down. So it had to wait another you know, 600 years until the uh, the Industrial Revolution in Britain and then the United States uh, took over a process. And it changed, using fossil fuels changed everything. This was the biggest <clears throat> power shift, not only in, in human evolution, but uh, in the entire biosphere over the last several million years, maybe the last uh, uh, 50, 60 million years or more. <clears throat> this is what agriculture looked like before fossil fuels. This is what it looks like today. Before, it took 70, 80, 90% of the population working on farms to produce enough food for everyone else. Today, it takes 2%. So this is a, uh, a USDA graph, farm jobs as percentage of total US jobs, uh, which is it's very revealing. But of course, the, <laughs> the assumption is that all those people working on jobs 200 years ago we're working there as employees. Was this a job? No, I mean, jobs basically hardly existed 200 years ago. Yes, informal employment did exist, but the number of people who were employed was a very small segment of the population. Most people either were landowners and farmers or slaves in the US and um, unfortunately, many other countries as well.
So this is what energy growth looks like over the last 200 years. Um, and we've gotten used to that. It's, uh, it's changed our expectations about the world. Uh, but growth is dangerous. <laughs> uh, anything that's growing at, at 1% annual rate doubles in size in 70 years. Okay, at 2% growth rate, it doubles in size in 35 years. Well, the Chinese economy has been growing at 7% for <clears throat> the last 15 years or so. That means it's doubling in size every 10 years. How long can that go on? The answer is not forever. Um, so growth is, is something that as, as an ecologist, as a system scientist, one looks at that and, and says, well, that's trouble. Uh, same thing with human population. Uh, as of September 2021, we're at very nearly 8 billion. We, uh, 200 years ago at the start of the fossil fuel revolution, 1 billion. So that's 800% growth in, uh, in just 200 years. Extraordinary. And per capita usage of, of uh, energy and resources has also grown 800% per capita not total. If you look at the total growth in energy and resources, much, much bigger. So what did we do with all of this energy? We applied it to things we'd been doing before, like making stuff. Um, but we realized when we did that, that we could make stuff so fast that uh, the economy couldn't absorb it. Uh, the problem of overproduction was one of the uh, factors leading to the Great Depression in the 1930s. And government uh, scientists and um, uh, industry uh, representatives got together and they devised a solution to uh, the problem of overproduction and underemployment. And it became what we call today the, the consumer economy, using advertising and consumer credit. It's possible to get people to consume more stuff to consume now and, and pay later. And that's how we've been keeping the economy cobbled together ever since. <clears throat> and with growth in consumption, we get more jobs, we get more tax revenues, we get more profits to businesses, uh, more returns to investors and everything is just hunky-dory. The economy became, for the first time ever, a thing to be tracked and measured with GDP, uh, unemployment statistics, and so on. None of this was occurring prior to the, the mid-20th century. And growth becomes the overall goal. So today, if speak to any politician, any economist, and they'll tell you growth is good. We have to have growth, of course. Um, <clears throat> But while all of this is going on, which seems seems so good, uh, we're 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 seeing the unintended byproducts of growth appearing throughout the biosphere, with uh, climate change, loss of wild nature, resource depletion, pollution, economic economic inequality growing uh, during most of this period. It's, it's a more complicated story, and I won't have time to explain it in detail, but ask about it if you're interested. 
You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Richard Heinberg and host Michael Lerner. And some smart folks realized that uh, that this was was uh, a story that would not, if it kept going as it was starting to go, it would not end well. And, and hence, we got the limits to growth report of, of 1972 in the standard run scenario of which we see uh, industrial output, population, and resources all peaking uh, in the, the early part of this century, basically all hell breaking loose before about 2050. Um, one other way of telling how we're doing is the uh, global footprint, uh, ecological footprint. We're using over, uh, one, one and a half Earth's worth of resources on an annual basis. How is that even possible? Well, by stealing from the future, basically. Uh, climate change is, it, these days, it's practically the only environmental problem most people talk about. And the assumption seems to be if we can just find a technical solution for climate change, then we're fine. Uh, and the, the technical solution that's most often, often proposed is just building a lot of solar panels and, and wind turbines. Uh, I suggest in, this, by the way, this is a, a, a book that um, a colleague and I wrote uh, three or four years ago that where we examine the likelihood of that actually happening and what it would, what it would mean in, in practical terms. Uh, my conclusion is climate change is not just a technical problem. It's a problem of power in, in a number of different ways. First of all, will solar and wind be able to solve the problem of climate change? Not very readily. Uh, they're both intermittent sources of energy. And even though the sun and wind are themselves renewable, the technologies um, are not. They're, they're solar panels and wind turbines are made out of stuff we dig out of the ground and process using high heat industrial processes that themselves require, if not fossil fuels, then something very, very much like fossil fuels in order to work. Um, and th these, these sources of energy produce electricity directly, which is great in one sense in that electricity is a very uh, a versatile car energy carrier, but we use 80% of our energy to currently in other forms, solid, liquid, and gaseous fuels. So all of the technologies that use those fuels are going to have to be switched in some way. And that's an absolutely uh, mammoth uh, infrastructure challenge. We're, we're really talking, if we were going to somehow do this to uh, make our current industrial technology, our current industrial world run entirely on renewable sources of energy, it would certainly be the biggest infrastructure project in the history of the world by a long shot. So when David Fridley and I examined the uh, the possibility of a, um, a renewable energy transition. We saw that scale is the biggest hurdle. If we try to replace all current energy usage quickly, actually the result will be a huge pulse in emissions because building all of this stuff, not just the panels and turbines, but the uh, industrial equipment and transportation devices, and all of this quickly, is going to require an enormous amount of energy. And the 80%, 85% of the energy that we have currently to do it with is fossil fuels. 
also, paradoxically, our effort to reduce carbon emissions could result in a huge pulse of carbon emissions unless we aim for a much smaller economy, lower energy usage, lower, lower resource consumption, and so on. That's the only way it's, it could possibly work. <clears throat> Inequality, briefly, um, there, there have been moments in the 20th century when it, economic inequality was pretty dramatically reduced uh, almost across the board around the world. Uh, and these were generally the result of two world wars and Great Depression. Um, a very good book. I don't have the, the cover up here, but um, The Great Leveler is an excellent piece of uh, economic research on <clears throat> tracking inequality during the last couple of hundred years, especially during the last century. And um, whenever there has, whenever we've had peace and things have been working generally well, the wealth pump gets going and inequality increases. And since the end of World War II, that's what's been basically going on. Uh, inequality has been increasing uh, rapidly and dramatically. And the whole basis of the production of global wealth is a, a, an inequality generating machine, if you if you want to think of it that way, a social machine. Um, and this quote from Jason Hickel is very telling about the, the global production of wealth and distribution of wealth. So if we're over, my argument in in much of the book is that we're overpowered. We are we fossil fuels. And social inequality, uh, social complexity, have overempowered us as a species and many humans within this species of uh, Homo sapiens. And if we're going to survive, we're going to have to give up power. And particularly, the humans who have the most of it are going to have to give up up a lot of power. So, are we even capable of power self limitation? So this, this brings us back to the, what I was talking about earl, earlier with the maximum power principle. If that's true, if maximum power is the organizing principle of evolution, then could it be that evolution itself has designed us to crash and burn? And there's basically nothing we can do about it. Well, I, I wanted to test that. And the more I thought about it, the more research I did. The more I realized that the maximum power principle, while it is certainly true, it does have an escape hatch, which I've called the optimum power principle, um, which simply says, um, yeah, the maximum power principle is true, but it's also, also true that it, uh, ecosystems and sometimes individuals within species or species as a whole will limit power over the short run in order to survive for a longer period of time. Um, not always true, but uh, homeostasis in individual organisms is basically a power balancing act that goes on 24-7. Power balancing in mechanisms in ecosystems include pre predator-prey relationships. And we humans have been doing this also ever since, you know, particularly the origin of state societies. We've tried all kinds of things, democracy, financial regulations, um, 
progressive tax we tax rich people more so to prevent extreme economic inequality uh, we have redistributive redistribute redistributive programs like social security medicare uh so on as ways of of equaling out the power to some degree so we know how to do this why isn't it working um well there there are psychological reasons for it uh and i i discussed those at, at at some length but really i think the the biggest answer to that question is simply that fossil fuels gave us so much power so fast that we developed the idea the myth that somehow we humans are so special that limits no longer apply uh even if we use up the even if we trash the earth we will continue evolving on other planets we'll colonize the rest of the solar system and then the galaxy and finally the universe there's nothing to stop us because we are uniquely powerful as a species well of course that's that's crazy it's insanity but what what it does is it keeps us from examining the the real limits that are that are confronting us and changing our behavior to adapt to those limits it's 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 sort of an anti-wisdom uh, mythology if you will so if if that's the case then what's the future of power the last chapter in the book is saying well okay what's what's in store for us the rest of this century and i don't know you know there're too many moving parts nobody can predict what what we can say i think with some confidence is that the future is bounded by two extreme possibilities on the one extreme is um <clears throat> self annihilation and the, 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 i explore some of the pathways by which that can happen and it's uh, unfortunately i have to say it's not that difficult to imagine uh and on the other side sufficient self restraint the only way we're going to prevent that self annihilation is if we are able to restrain ourselves in some concrete ways whether uh not just carbon emissions but also land use setting aside you know 50% of the planet for other species to recover and uh you know banning certain chemical especially hormone mimicking chemicals uh etc cetera, etc cetera. all these are ways of giving up power social inequality rich people are going to have to be taxed at much higher rates they're going to have to give up a lot of their wealth and rich countries are going to have to give up their many of their advantages over currently poor countries that are actually being systematically impoverished in order to make rich rich countries rich um <clears throat> that's not the path we're currently on the path we're currently on is the one that's uh, that's that's leading us if not to extinction and something very close to it we are a very adaptable species and it's entirely possible that even in the worst case scenario you know some isolated pockets of of homo sapiens some homo sapiens would survive but <clears throat> nevertheless it's, it wouldn't be a very happy existence that kind of speaks for itself in our deep future i think you know we we humans do have some pretty amazing abilities um our language tool use and so on 
if we're not going to just get ourselves into trouble over and over again, how are we going to use these special abilities? Well, I think we could use them just by producing, protecting uh, beauty. Uh, you know, there's the what's called the Fermi paradox. Where is every if if there statistically there must be other intelligent species out there? So where are they? Where is everybody? Um, one answer is one possible answer is that it's the nature of intelligent species to destroy themselves. But another answer to the the Fermi paradox, which actually I, I don't see discussed in very many places, is that truly intelligent species um, come to grips with with limits, environmental limits. And then decide to spend the rest of their time on their little planets just enjoying, enhancing, and protecting the beauty around them. What a great way to spend your time. Um, and what a great way to spend your outsized abilities using language for poetry, for jokes, for, you know, um, plays and, and so on, rather than for, you know, dominating other, other human beings. So um, if we're going to get there, I think it's going to have to come about as a result of our fighting vertical power with more horizontal power and building alliances currently. You know, there are lots of people work at working at limiting power through, you know, uh, weapons or um, carbon emissions or social inequality or whatever. All of these people are going to have to start seeing themselves as allies and breaking down the silos, which unfortunately the, our current nonprofit and foundation systems, they just encourage the silos rather than breaking them down to a large extent. <sighs> yeah. So that's this is the last slide. One of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite philosophers in all human history. And that's it. So let's talk. Richard, that was wonderful. So many directions we could take this, but I want to read briefly from uh, your advice to young people in the 21st century on page 332 of the book. This is what you're encouraging young people to do. Learn to grow food, study permaculture, learn to read people. You're going to need to know whether people are trustworthy. Be trustworthy, otherwise smart and trustworthy people won't associate with you. Learn to express yourself clearly and persuasively. It's okay not to reproduce. Learn to make decisions by consensus. Learn to repair and use simple technologies. Over the long term, you'll benefit more from learning to fix farming and construction tools and small engines. Learn to make spare parts from junk. Learn to defend yourself. Sadly, for the remainder of this century, the world is likely to be a more violent place. Learn to heal the human body via nutrition, herbs, and basic emergency care. Learn about nature. Memorize the names of local plants, birds, and insects. Learn to be comfortable in the wild. Learn to produce beauty via art, music, or movement. Learn to emotionally process trauma and grief and to help others to do so and so forth. I didn't read them all. But that's, um, you know, that's quite a set of recommendations. Yeah, at the end, I say, uh, nobody can do it all. Right. But do your best. Right. Yeah. And, um, and in your uh, 
in your sort of dichotomy with all the places in between that either we learn self-restraint to restrain power, to focus on beauty and uh, and horizontal power versus self-annihilation. And you kind of mentioned that maybe a few pockets of humanity will remain. But it seems to me that there's another option that is somewhat hopeful, which is implicit in a lot that you said, which is that, yes, there's going to be a lot of tragedy, but that a sufficient number of human beings, not just a few pockets, will reconstitute uh, a life-affirming civilization. It seems to me, I mean, I think that's the thrust of your book, but in your summary, it was self-annihilation versus, you know, and, and I just wanted to right. emphasize that center point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I, I hope I didn't give the wrong impression. Those are the, those are the two ends of the spectrum, but there's a lot of space in between. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll land uh, it <laughs> further toward the, the, the sufficient self-restraint end of the spectrum. But um, the the book is the dedication of the book is for the survivors yeah. Yeah. and and so i i hope you know the the message of this book if not the book itself i i don't have any great hopes that you know millions of people will read the book or anything like that but i hope the the, the essence of the book somehow is transmitted mm-hmm. um that the, the need for power self limitation the need to learn once again how to um, the, the wisdom of self-control. I'm going to read three uh, questions together so that you can make little notes and decide how you want to answer. Marianne Mott said, in the course of your research, did you come across Alice uh, Friedman's Life After Fossil Fuels? Could you comment? Randy Hayes said, Richard, what did you learn about violent revolution to stop governing? that large people didn't like? Did it? Did any lead to significantly better world? Actually, you, you do talk about violent protest in the book uh, as, as uh, sometimes useful. Jim Quay uh, says, uh, limiting our power will require great restraint. The wager of democracy is this can be done through education and persuasion. The wager of authoritarian states is it must be done by compulsion. If persuasion appears not to be working, See the ministry for the future. Alternative to violent compulsion is there. So those are three questions. And friends, I welcome you to put up more. Yeah, um, Alice Friedman's uh, work is excellent, and uh, I, I know Alice, and and she's a, a terrific energy analyst, uh, and she's written several books. Uh, one one of which is called "When the Trucks Stop Running." So um, her point is. Electric cars are are pretty easy. That's kind of the low-hanging fruit of of electrifying uh, transportation. But trucks, which we currently depend on to move all sorts of stuff, especially in in North America, very hard to electrify big trucks. And so what does that mean for the future of consumer society? And uh, Well, anyway, Alice Friedman is a a terrific analyst. I recommend her work. Violent revolution. Uh, what what are the typical results in through history? Well, um, I mean, 
they are moments when extreme power is uh, is unseated, but that doesn't mean that the the, the result ne- is uh, uh, necessarily um, better. It can result in you know just a, 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 a switch of you know who has the power, uh, as we saw in with the uh, uh, the Russian Revolution of uh, 1917. Uh, the extreme economic inequality of the uh, pre-revolutionary society gave way to a situation where the communist apparatchiks then held enormous power. And Stalin, of course, uh, um, caused the deaths of, of millions of, of uh, Russians through starvation uh, and gulags and, and so on, work camps. So... Um, Revolutions have a have a pretty checkered history of of succeeding in in the long run uh, at uh, uh, creating horizontal power. Nevertheless, um, there are some you know sort of shining moments in history where, for short periods of time at least, uh, leveling efforts seemed to work. Um, uh, during the, the famously during the uh, the, the Spanish uh, um, uh, Civil War in the 1930s, uh, parts of Spain actually were taken over or I, I, self self organized were self organized by uh, by anarchists and and did reasonably well, but only for a short period of time until they were they were. Um, defeated by by Franco's forces. Um, education or compulsion as paths uh, forward. Well, the problem with compulsion is that it always sooner or later results in um, uh, folks resisting. It, it leads to resistance uh, to the compulsion. Um, Sometimes much later, we could be talking hundreds of years. Extremely unequal societies have, in in some case, in some cases, lasted um, a thousand years. So it's not immediate; it's not automatic, but it does. Uh, the 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 response is uh, eventual and inevitable. So, um, question. Yeah. Um, whether, uh, you know, Daniel Ellsberg uh, commented recently on, you know, the invasive technologies that we live with. And he said, uh, while we may not yet live in a totalitarian society, all the levers of totalitarianism are in place. So one wonders whether um, compulsion may not be uh, more lasting when the new technologies enable the levels of intrusion uh, for unbelievable levels of social control. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I'm in touch with a, a number of uh, folks who are really concerned about the, the, uh, the environmental crises that we face and, and who believe that the only way that we're going to solve them is through some sort of, you know, compulsory law, compulsory birth control, mm-hmm. uh, compulsory carbon uh, limits, um, rationing, etc. And I, I have to say, they make they make good points. If if we just rely on education, 
will we be able to get far enough, fast enough to avert um, some kind of calamity? You um, you cite uh, someone who you actually introduced me to, and I find one of the most extraordinary futurists uh, we've had, David Fleming, his book, Survive yeah. the Future. Um, could you say a little about uh, Fleming's vision? And uh, because you talk about it in the yeah, let me see. I think I have. Uh, well, you have his. Uh, I have you, lean logic here. Right. But, but I. Uh, that's the big book. Yeah, that's the big book. But the one that's uh, that's more accessible is called Surviving the Future. I don't see it right next to me, but it's a it's a fantastic book. I was fortunate to know David. He, he died in 2010. Uh, he was an economist, but he was an economist who who saw human beings multidimensionally, not just as dollar signs and and uh, you know benefit maximizing machines. Um, and he he believed that uh, the the pathway to a not just a survivable future, but a uh, a stable, uh, sustainable future, included uh, festival. That we we are creatures who love to uh, enjoy ourselves and celebrate, and and we always have through seasonal ceremonies and festivals, as I wrote about in an ancient book of mine called "Celebrate the Solstice," um, all, all the way through history, and uh, and festival is a way of of bringing people together in a in a context that's obviously celebratory and getting them in in sync with one another and able to you know work together agreeably to get stuff done on O'Malley a wonderful physician colleague um, writes I'll soon be making a presentation at a conference of integrative medicine practitioners that part of our role in society at this planetary moment is to promote individual and community resilience in many ways you poignantly suggest you such suggest to youth do you have suggestions for community building among leaders across sectors in this effort a sangha of sorts for supportive engagement and cross-pollination right yeah um my organization post-carbon institute has been holding this this banner for several years of building community resilience and uh, i'd like to be able to say that we've had you know all of these practical successes with this community and that community and so on. Uh, we have worked with other organizations like the Transition Network, the Transition Towns, because we, we like their, their organi- organizing methodology. But even there, you know, there, there's been more success in some places, like in particularly in Britain, than in the U.S., so I don't have a magic formula. Um, uh, the Stockholm Resilience Center has uh, done a lot of, of really good work in terms of producing a, um, a, a, a scheme for assessing levels of community resilience, which, you know, you have to start somewhere. So assessing uh, where a community is on uh, and and in various aspects, food system, energy system, water, um, homeless, uh, crime rates, all, all of these things can be uh, uh, assessed that way. And then you know where to 
where to where to focus. But you have to get the the community leadership on board with it. Um, basically, all of the all of the stakeholders in the community have to be involved. So it's not just about getting the city council uh, in in on the process. But if you if they aren't, then you're not going to accomplish very much. So there there are. And and if you've been working on on a, a community resilience building, you probably know everything already that I I just said. But nevertheless, uh, that's that's what we've learned so far. Our colleague and friend Tom Cruise from Rockefeller Brothers Fund says festivals can also help limit accumulation, level and limit, which is an important point. You know, right. one thing that didn't come up, and our colleague Pete Myers is all over this issue is that when you talked about limiting population, uh, you didn't reference the incredibly important work that Shauna Swan has done. Are you familiar with her work? Yes, it, I actually do cite it in the book. Uh, I wasn't able to mention it in, in my little brief summary at, uh, in, at the start of our session. But yeah, I mean, when, you, when we talk about, that's the irony of talking about population. Population is an overpopulation is a real an enormous problem, and it contributes to climate change and all uh, biodiversity loss and all these other problems. And yet, at the same time, on the other hand, we may be facing a, a crisis of um, in in which reproduction becomes next to impossible because of all of the hormone mimicking chemicals in the environment, and not only for human beings but for other species as well. In some way, that's the the, the 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 scariest factoid I've ever seen is that that chart of uh, Shauna Swan showing um, average male sperm counts declining to zero by 2045. Um, of course, that's just an average, but nevertheless, I mean, that's just uh, gobsmacking. Um, so one of our one of our top priorities certainly has to be reducing the power of the petrochemical industry to um, to produce these uh, these pollutants. Yeah, I apologize that I missed that in the book. Can you imagine as we watch these uh, horrible scenes at the American southern border and in Europe where people are trying to stop uh, massive migration from the global south to safer places, can you imagine that as that takes place, that it, it will turn out that... Uh, where there are pockets of fertile younger people who are able to work, uh, the the dynamics of um, of those borders will change, and that as people try to come in to Europe and uh, and North America and other uh, relatively affluent places and try to move up toward uh, you know northern areas where it will be possible to survive, uh, we may be welcoming significantly. <laughs> Yeah, a, yeah, that that uh, that political dynamic could very well change. Um, I hope so. I mean, right now, the the most likely scenario is for uh, massive migration to cause more more kinds of political disruption and inhumane, um, you know, behavior and treatment of, of others. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Richard Heinberg and host Michael Lerner. I was thinking about the book uh, that 
you know, how close it is to spiritual injunctions. And you cite a whole bunch of them that essentially that in or in, in addition to, you know, physician heal thyself and, you know, uh, Plato know thyself, that uh, self-mastery, self-restraint is one of the key human spiritual injunctions, you know, to be master of yourself, you quote Milton, is is to be more than a king. Uh, and then you quote all the thinkers about uh, how to live frugally or with very little, you know, uh, Muhammad saying, you know, my poverty is my wealth. So what's really interesting here is that uh, in a lot of the great religious traditions, precisely the spiritual injunctions, which are part of our genetic heritage and our cultural heritage, are the injunctions that, that if practiced, would enable us to survive better. Right. And, and uh, one of the sad parts of the, the development of consumerism Right. Was that those those cultural injunctions got waylaid, got down, um, turned aside, and forgotten? So you know, parents used to teach their children the value of frugality and learning how to take care of things and recycle things and reuse things and so on. And now, of course, that's just mm-hmm. that that's ancient stuff. Uh, one one of the areas that I um, was kind of excited to do some research on in the in the book was um, what's called the axial age in uh, in history. Uh, roughly, we're talking about fifteen hundred to five hundred uh, BC or so, and then continuing continuing a little after, which was the period where the uh, monotheism and the world religions that. Uh, that now claims so many hundreds of millions of adherents got their start. Um, previous to that time, religion was not a moralizing force in, in human society. Uh, and particularly going back into, into hunter-gatherer times, there wasn't even what we necessarily call religion. There certainly was spirituality and, and shamanistic practices and so on. But it's only in the, uh, the, the axial age that, that we get big gods. And I, I recommend a, a book by that title by Aaron Nuranzerian. Um, and he, he traces the evolution of, of big gods and why this happened. Essentially, it was, it was related to the, this process of social evolution, whereby societies were getting bigger and bigger. And as empires emerged, you had societies composed largely of strangers, people who came from different cultures, had different traditions, different languages. So how do you get all these people on the same page? Well, if you have, if you can get them all to agree on a big God religion, where there's a, uh, a, a deity, an all-seeing deity who's constantly monitoring your behavior so that religion is all about uh, proving your dedication to the big God through, um, through you know, going to church and making donations and, and uh, adhering to, to the rules and so on, then everybody becomes more trustworthy. And this has practical implications for, uh, for trade 
you know, if if you're trading with other people of the same religion, you're you have a there's a better likelihood that that you can trust the person you're trading with. So it was this was an evolutionary development, and it was also a uh, it was also in many ways a corrective to the extremes of inequality. Uh, social inequality that had, that had developed with the origin of, of the first state societies several thousand years earlier. Now suddenly, religion becomes more about uh, more about equality and peace and justice. These ideas emerge with the uh, the big god religions with the with the axial age, and they've they've been in many ways a a, a benefit to humanity. They're of course. You know, proving that you're that you're a good Christian or or whatever is uh, one of the ways of doing so. Can be you know going out and slaughtering non-believers. So th- there's there's a lot that these religions have to answer for as well. But nevertheless, the the the, the good bits deserve to be preserved in whatever way we can. Yeah, Nietzsche famously called Christianity a slave religion. Uh, and one could extend that to other religions that promote, um, you know, equity and peacefulness and so forth. Um, two questions. Sandra Weil says, I hesitate to mention Rudolf Steiner's writing on the threefold social order, but are you familiar with it? And do you find his vision helpful? And Jim Quay uh, says, your reference um to the axial age, whence many of our ethical and religious injunctions originated, makes me wonder whether already existing injunctions are adequate or new ones are necessary. That's an interesting question on either of those. Yeah, uh, I can't say much about Steiner. I I read some of Steiner back in the 70s and early 80s, and I haven't haven't refreshed my acquaintance with with his um, writing since then. He started biodynamic gardening. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Close to, close to your thesis. Yeah. Right. I, I, I know who Steiner was, and, and I, I have a lot of respect for him, but I, I just haven't refreshed my... Yeah. So I can't speak to that. Um, <clears throat> do we new, need new injunctions uh, post-axial age? Absolutely. I think, you know, f- what humanity is going through now uh, in in terms of evolu- evolutionary phases, is uh, f- far more profound in its uh, ultimate implications than the origin of state societies, the axial age, or the be- or even the beginning of the fossil fuel era. Uh, certainly, of of those three, the the fossil fuel era has had the the greatest uh, implications so far. Um, I mean, in just 200 years, look what's happened. Human society has changed in far more profound ways than uh, at, at any previous time. And But the fossil fuel age now is giving way to something else. What is it? Uh, and that's yet to be determined. And we are part of that. We are part of that process. But there there will certainly be new injunctions. And I think they will. <clears throat> they will have a lot to do with power self-limitation and with uh, with horizontal social power, how that works, how it's how it's maintained. James Stark from the Regenerative Design Institute is a great uh, regenerative uh, agriculturalist, horticulturalist, says in your research and, and look to the possible future, 
What role and importance do you see the feminine playing? And, you know, I was thinking about that, too, as I read your book, because it really did seem that the values and horizontal power and sharing and so on and so forth is, you know, a quintessentially and deeply feminine vision. Mm. When we think about the movement from the big God religions of our time, which tend, broadly speaking, to be patriarchal, mm. uh, the recovery of the divine feminine, um, both within those religions uh, and uh, beyond them, it just seems like a really profound thing, as does the fact that with the pandemic, a lot of the countries that have done the best were run by women. You know, okay. yeah. one really one really does wonder whether a fundamental dimension of this shift is toward um, a world in which uh, feminine governance and wisdom plays a much more profound role. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, <clears throat> where to start uh one thing looking at at uh violence um which i did in the course of this book because violence is one way that humans exert power over one another it's one of the main uh channels of vertical social power and uh, it's very clear that men are responsible for roughly 90% of, of uh, violent acts in most countries where st- such statistics are kept. Mm-hmm. So the more, the more patriarchal the, the society, the more violent it's likely to be. And the, 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 the role of women in society has, has changed pretty dramatically from period to period with the advent of early state societies, the, the, uh, uh, self-determination of women took a huge, huge dip from which we're still uh, recovering. And that was partly because uh, these were were societies organized around cities, and cities are inherently very unhealthy places, people living in close quarters. And at that time, of course, um, humans hadn't developed a, an accommodation to a lot of infectious diseases that, you know, measles and things like that. So diseases were rampant, uh, poor sanitation, sanitation hadn't been developed. So these were very uh, unhealthy places. People died <laughs> at early ages in large numbers. And so the, the only way to maintain these kinds of urban societies was to constantly import new human beings from the countryside. So that meant conquering other surrounding peoples and capturing them and enslaving them and raping the women, forcing them to have children and incorporating them into the society. And also forcing the women who are part of your society to have as many children as possible. So the role of women in society came to be that of you know, domestic work and and child uh, child rearing and and uh, producing as many offspring as possible. And again, we've been recovering that from that ever since. And uh, I, in in the book, I suggest I think you know the permaculturists have probably got it right in that agriculture has always entailed um, large doses of social inequality. And uh, before, but before agriculture, we uh, 
there was a stage in between hunting and gathering and agriculture, which anthropologists call horticulture, typically divided into simple and complex horticultural societies. And horticultural societies are often <clears throat> matrifocal and matrilineal. Uh, and the, the status of women in these societies is typically uh, quite high. So I, I think we we'd be better off if we were gardening society, a gardening society. And permaculture, of course, that was the that was part of the vision of the the originators of permaculture all the way back in the 1970s. So I think I think they got it right. And and uh, the more we can grow our own food and do it on a <clears throat> in an an ecological way, a permaculture way, the better off we'll be not only physically and environmentally, but also socially. It's interesting that endocrine-disrupting chemicals are often feminizing hormones. Hmm. So, you know, just in terms of the ways we've chosen to poison ourselves, at least um, <laughs> moving us in some ways uh, toward a greater expression. One of the people that you uh, cite frequently is Peter Turchin and his uh, work on studying cultural evolution via group selection, shifts in food production and social organization, and how they were motivated primarily by population growth and warfare. But you really, you found Turchin to be important to your work. Could you say more about him? Yeah, I've, I've, uh, the more I read Turchin, the more I learn about him, the more I, I, I respect his work. He, he was an insect um, evolutionary, biolog uh, uh, evolutionary biologist who studied insects. And he basically solved uh, a whole series of, of key problems in, uh, in that field. And it, using uh, lots of data and data analysis and methods that he, he developed along with a small team working with him. And he said, well, um, the methodology works. Is there something more important I can apply this methodology to? Well, how about human social evolution? <laughs> and so he he did, and and he and his colleagues have a, have this database that I mentioned earlier, Sheshak. It's called. It's named after an Egyptian goddess, um, the, the Egyptian goddess of statistics, or something like that. <laughs> anyway, um, they've they've really been able to. Uh, uh, make a lot of reliable inferences from the data that uh, that I think are extremely helpful in in better understanding you know who we are as humans, how we come to be the way how we come to live the way we live uh, in, in, from a social standpoint, and the dynamics of the kinds of society that, that we're living in, the unstable dynamics and what that what that tends to look like and is so yeah go ahead is Turchin's work widely accepted among academics uh yes um i mean there there are folks i mean for example stephen uh stephen pinker yeah pinker yeah. uh is 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 one of those evolutionary thinkers, biologists, thinkers who who dismisses the whole idea of multi-level uh, selection mm -hmm. um, and therefore doesn't have any use for Turchin's work. But I think that's just a perverse ideological 
uh, reaction. And because if you if you look at at the work of Turchin and his colleagues, it's they're they're attacking interesting questions and important questions. Mm-hmm. They're doing so in a systematic way that makes sense, mm-hmm. and they're coming up with useful answers. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, just complaining that you know um, multi-level selection is, is is not good evolutionary biology. It seems to me to be totally beside the point. We have about seven minutes left, and um, you know, first of all, thank you. I'll thank you again at the end. But um, now that you've written this, now that the book is out, uh, you're giving talks and having conversations. Um, do you have any sense of where you will go from here? Hmm. Um, well, to tell you the truth, I think this this book is going to be sort of my marker in in the sand. I I don't anticipate, you know, writing another big picture book like this anytime in the future. Uh, this is um, th- this has been a a, a, a big effort, and I feel like it's it's been a, it's a summary of everything that I've I've worked on in in my adult academic uh, creative life. So uh, I, I don't have any any other plans in that sense. I do intend to keep writing mm-hmm. uh, the the previous book, Our Renewable Future, that I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about the possibility of, uh, of bringing that uh, back up to date. Talking about energy, of course, the statistics are always changing, and the renewable energy world is is very different today than it was five years ago when we were doing our, our research for the uh, the first edition of that. So, uh, one project is is just to bring that up to date. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were um, perhaps premature with many other people in assuming that we were at peak oil and have said so publicly and uh, you clearly weren't alone Uh, where do you uh, uh, but the underlying analysis um, still seems really interesting because on the one hand uh, it's getting more and more expensive to find new sources of uh, of hydrocarbons. Uh, on the other hand, they keep inventing new technologies and keep finding them. And of course, uh, it's going to kill us if they keep. <laughs> but, um, nobody has developed a very persuasive analysis of how we're going to get people to, quote, keep it in the ground. So I just wonder where are you as you look back on your? It's like being prematurely anti-fascist. You were right, but you <laughs> you were too early for people to to rock it. Uh, uh, now, as you look back and look forward at the energy equation, uh, how do you see it? Where do you see us going? Right. Well, <clears throat> yeah, you're right. There there are some things that we did not see coming. Uh, I didn't back in 2003 when I wrote the parties over. I did not foresee the fracking revolution at, that would occur. You know, starting in the in well, starting roughly around 2010. Mm-hmm. But that said, there were there were some things that we did get right, and I think we deserve uh, or us old peak oilers deserve some credit for. <clears throat> 
regular conventional oil production did stop growing around 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, the unconventional uh, oil that's that's taken over growth, the, what's produced by fracking, the Canadian tar sands, the uh, ultra deep water oil uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and other places off Brazil. Um, these are sources that uh, have a short short shelf life, particularly fracking, I, I would say. That's uh, not so much true with tar sands, but the tar sands are, the, the, these are completely different categories, they're different discussions. But fracking is, is what gets most people's attention because it really was a miracle. I mean, the U.S. oil production is higher now than it was at its peak in the early 1970s. And no one was foreseeing that back back when I was writing, certainly not us peak oilers or anyone else for that matter, not that the oil industry itself didn't foresee it. Um, but um, I, I wrote a book on on uh, fracking called Snake Oil, where I, I and and we've done a lot of expert analysis at, at Post Carbon Institute on the prospects for um, uh, uh, tight oil, and they they're not particularly good because individual wells deplete so quickly. You have to drill and drill and drill. The core areas that are profitable for production get drilled really quickly. And that's happened in most of the plays already. The only one where, that, where uh, increased production is still possible or likely is, uh, <clears throat> is uh, Southern Texas. And uh, else, elsewhere, I mean, North Dakota is already in decline. Uh, world oil production hit, a, hit its peak so far in... November 2018, and it's generally down since then, uh, substantially down since the start of, of the pandemic. Is it possible it could still set another record? Yes, but probably only for a short period of time. World natural gas production likely to peak this decade. World coal production possibly has already peaked as a result of China. Uh, China's uh, uh, coal production is, is down now, and uh, and China's coal production and consumption is so high that it it bas basically shapes the global um, uh, situation. So, uh, one of the things that I think uh, the whole peak oil discussion uh, brought out that is really important to the whole resource conversation is the whole low-hanging fruit principle of resource extraction. We go after the cheap, easy stuff first. And even though there's, there's always more left, over time, it gets more difficult, more expensive, more environmentally ruinous to produce. And of course, that's exactly what's happened over the last, uh, last 15, 20 years since this conversation started. So I think it's helped some people understand that, but others, you know, it's sad to see that the failure of a few unwise predictions uh, <laughs> about when global oil production would peak have led many people to dismiss the whole idea that these resources are even limited. You know, they, they seem to have concluded that um, we will always have more to find and we will always invent a new technology to dig deeper or process lower grade resources and therefore it's not a thing but um no well as they say nature bats last right yeah <laughs> that's true uh richard heinberg it is such a pleasure to be back with you i find this to be an extraordinarily important book um i 
I note that you had to publish it with a wonderful small publisher. And um, I had exchanges with you in which I said, I thought this should be very widely available. So I hope for this wonderful new society publishers that it's an immense success. And I'm also, I'll be very curious to see whether your thinking on power becomes uh, a tool for organizing and advocacy. One thing to use energy as a tool for organizing and advocacy, you know, carbon. But the question, uh, which we don't have time to address today, is um, what are the uses of this profound analysis of power uh, to help move us toward a more just and sustainable world? And it will be very interesting to discover. Yeah, that's a, that's a great conversation to have, and I, I would ha- happily join it with uh, you and and others. Well, let's let's look forward to that. That gives us the subject for our next conversation. So, right. Richard Heinberg, thank you so much for joining us uh, at the New School. Uh, we're getting thanks from Angela and Marianne Mott and Brandon Stoll and others. I'm going to turn it back to Kira for a close. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, uh, for joining us. And thank you, Richard. Uh, it's great to have you back. And Michael, it's fabulous to have you back as well. Again, we'll have the recordings from this uh, conversation up in about a week or two. And you can find all of our recordings, including this one, on our website, tns.commonweal.org. And we'll see you next time. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Wonderful to be with you. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Richard Heinberg and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.